through the book of Ephesians, and we're going to cover verses 30 through 32 of chapter 4. That might sound a little ambitious, for we're trying to keep things a little shorter and tidier, given the fact that we're going to be celebrating the Lord's table after the service today, and then we will have our church picnic. I did turn my microphone on, I'd forgotten to, so the sound guy can forgive me, remembering that this passage says you must forgive me, okay? (laughs) All right. Ephesians chapter 4, let's pick up our reading in verse 30, 978 of the Pew Bible. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Let's pray. Father, give us grace for this passage. Help us to put on Christ and with that his tender-hearted merciful forgiveness. I pray that we would run from the sins of wrath and bitterness and anger, clamor and strife, and run toward you. So fundamentally transform us from within that we would be compassionate, merciful, empathetic people who are easily entreated in love, forgiving others as much as you love forgiving us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Children, I have a parable for you. I remembered that you guys were going to be up here in the main service today, and so I wanted to start with a story just for you guys, and I'm going to let your parents listen in. Fair deal? Okay. Children, do you think it would be good if you showed a lot of respect to firefighters? I think so. They risk their lives just to keep our stuff from burning down. They risk their lives so that fire doesn't spread. If there's a car accident, they're the first on the scene usually. If you have to call for an emergency, they usually get to your house before the paramedics do. We've got firefighters who fight house fires, who fight forest fires, who fight all kinds of fires. Now, children, I want you to hear a story about a fireman named Mark. Mark loved being a fireman. He loved everything about it. He would wear his the shirt for the firehouse that he had. He'd wear his hat for the fire that represented his firehouse. And he would go fight fires with his co-firefighters. He loved it. He loved the job. He loved doing it. He did it for 10 years. One day there was a huge, huge fire in a factory. It burned so hot that three of Mark's firefighter friends ended up in the hospital with burns all over their bodies. And they couldn't fight fires anymore because they'd gotten burned. One day, the fire chief came in with a DVD in his hand. And he said, Fellas, there was security footage. The person who started the fire in the factory that hurt our friends He was caught on the cameras. He loads the DVD into the player and turns it on. Children, 
who did they see? But Mark. Pouring gasoline around the building, into the corners, starting fires. He started the fire that hurt his friends. Now children, I have a question for you. What do you think Mark's friends thought when they saw Mark the firefighter starting a fire? What do you think they thought? How do you think they felt? Somebody, some child, please tell me. How do you think they felt? Yes, Charlotte. Sad and mad at the same time. I'd say that's a pretty good answer. Now, children, I'd like to tell you something. The story that I just told you never happened. Okay? I made it up. I made it up. But listen. Did you know that it's just as absurd for a firefighter to be a man who starts fires that hurts other people? It is just as absurd to have Christians who refuse to forgive. As much as it grieves the public when our public servants fail us in an official capacity, so it grieves the heart of God to have children who He's forgiven and see them bite and hurt and malign one another and a spirit that lacks forgiveness. Now let's go to the passage and understand what we're talking about here. We'll get some context. The Apostle Paul has been talking to us about putting off the old Gentile ways of thinking and putting on Christ. We observed that for several verses, Paul was talking about this in sort of a general way. Put off, put on. Take it off like a garment. Put on Christ like a garment. And then last week we studied Paul's four points Christian integrity. He talks about truth speaking. He talks about not letting sinful anger pro be prolonged to get quick resolution. Don't be angry and do not sin. He talks about no longer stealing but allowing honest work to um, result in generosity to others. And he talks about letting all evil speech out of just putting it out away from our mouths and speaking only in edifying terms. And we learned that throughout Scripture, these four sins sometimes go together, often go together. And so, as we build the character of the Christian in the image of Christ, these are four things that need constant attention. We adults have to constantly be putting truth into the inner parts and letting that regulate our lives. It's a never-ending battle until the day we die. Now, Paul is going to make a transition. And look at your Bibles. In verse 30, he says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Now, right away, we have a decision to make. When he says, And do not grieve, does he mean that lying, stealing, being angry... Evil words, does he mean that those are the things that grieve the Spirit of God? Or is he saying, and do not grieve the Spirit of God because evil, uh, 
because then he goes on to say, um, I, I lost my place in my Bible, my page, that bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander, are those the things that grieve the Spirit of God? Okay, does the and, in other words, look backward? Or does it look forward? Well, in my opinion, and you can go either way, my commentaries were split on the matter. I think this goes forward. For the simple reason that the Apostle Paul was following a pattern. And this breaks the pattern. And this passage has kind of a central thought. And a new pattern after this is established in chapter 5, verse 1. So in my opinion, this and, and do not grieve the Spirit of God, looks forward. In other words, what Paul, the Apostle Paul is saying is, there is a sin that is particularly grievous to the Spirit of God. And that is an unforgiving, unkind, malicious spirit that refuses to forgive. That is... That is, a, that is a grievous sin to the Spirit of God because it is so counter what God in Christ Jesus does for us. Okay? Now, let's go to the passage. We've got three points. Do not be grieving, put away, and responsive grace. That's, those are our three points, and they cover verses 30, 31, and 32. So if you want to write those down, we can just cover those. We're going to cover them verses one by... Uh, in a row there, one, two, three, and we'll go from there. We read in verse 30, Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God. The word to grieve means to cause sorrow or to distress. It's some sort of sorrow or distress in the heart of God. In Genesis chapter 6, 5 and 6, it says that the thoughts of mankind were only evil continually, and it grieved God that he created mankind. God had appointed King Saul over the nation of Israel in 1 Samuel 15 verse 35. We're told that because of Saul's disobedience and hardness of heart, it had grieved him to the core. In Isaiah chapter 63, verses 7 through 10, we're told that God had redeemed Israel. But because they'd turned their back and followed other idols and followed other gods, that this action of turning one's back on God had grieved God's Holy Spirit. This is any action that would cause grief or sorrow. I want us to understand the heightened nature of this word grieved. For it is used of a woman whose husband has abandoned her in adultery and walked away from the marriage and left her by herself. Both Adultery and abandonment. And the grief, and anger, and despair, and remorse that that would cause in her heart. That's the level of grieving that we're told not to tempt the Holy Spirit to feel. He says, Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed. Now, we have a few different ways in our language that we seal things. Uh, I like, to, you know, we, uh, we have the Ziploc baggies in our home. Uh, do they still have the commercials that say, what is it, uh, yellow and blue make green, and then you know that it's sealed up? And I just give it a good slap on the side and make sure it doesn't explode on me. You've got to have nice airtight in there. I'm sure when you, if you're like me, when you fly, you seal up everything that goes in, that, that, that's, 
liquid and you put it in a Ziploc baggie, I go through half the supply of Ziploc baggies in the Baker home, making sure I don't get things spilling out on my suitcase. It's sealed. I want you to know that is not the word here. <laughs> this is a word that has more to do with identification. Okay? We're told uh, here, uh, we're told in, for example, Revelation 7.3 that it's a mark of ownership. Let us pretend that you were in the shipping industry and you were going to send a bunch of crates across the country. How would you mark that those containers were yours and not somebody else's? Well, you, if you lived in the ancient world, you would have them apply a big hunk of hot wax onto the side of that box. And then you would have your assistant take your seal that was unique to you and you'd press it into that wax. And some of these wax seals were quite large, like the size of a dinner plate, so that anybody looking at it knew whose box who that box belonged to. That's how we seal things. It's a mark of identity. It can also be official certification. You want to know that not only is this somebody's, but it is actually officially the king's. And you do not mess with something that has the king's signature on it. It was a mark of certification. It was a a guard for safekeeping. We're not talking about airtightness. We're, we're meaning like an official document. You need to send a secret message across the empire. You roll it up, put a thing of wax on there and mark it with the king's seal. This belongs to the king. And it's to be executed according to his will. And anybody who opens it is committing an act of treason against his king. Any unauthorized person who opens it. It's a mark of official designation and ownership. And we're told that the Spirit of God has marked in an official, kingly, identifying way every one of us for the day of redemption. Now, why is that important? Because we're told in Matthew chapter 13, verse 24, that the day, of the, the day of redemption, the day of the Lord is like this. It's like a field that sprouted wheat and weeds. You don't pull the weeds out lest you harm the wheat. And so on the day of harvest... You separate the two. Jesus says that the kingdom of God is like the separation of sheep and goats. It's like the separation dragging a net on the bottom of the ocean and you pull some good fish and some bad and you separate them out. That the angels will come down from heaven, Jesus says in Matthew 24, 29, and 30, and he, the angels will selectively pull out those who are his. What Paul is reminding us here is that all of us have had an official, all of us who are in Christ Jesus, all of us who have been born again and asked Jesus to save us from our sins, all of us have an official, kingly stamp of ownership put onto us that identifies us. In the day of redemption, we have no fear for we are identified as the king's. We're His officially. We bear His marks. We're His. He's ours. 
Therefore, our conduct must be becoming of the mark that we bear, the identification that we have. And Paul is going to tell us that there is a set of sins that are so particularly grievous and antithetical and opposite are marks of ownership that we have to put them off as far away as the east is from the west. What are those marks that are so opposite the identification that we bear? That brings us to our second point, put away. He's going to list several items. I'm, I, I put little animations on these, David. Just go ahead and click through all of them so everybody can see them. This is bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, malice. Commentators have debated over whether these are sins, of, sins that build on each other. It starts, for example, with a spirit of bitterness and then proceeds to anger and blossoms in, proceeds to wrath and blossoms into anger all the way to malice. And I would say I think there's some merit to that idea. I think it's possible. There's also more of the idea of like a color wheel. Here you have a, a wheel of colors and, and they're all part of the same set. Maybe some of you have gone down to the paint store and said, I want the swatch selection for blue. And they give you 89 colors for blue on this one sheet of paper. And you, you hold them up individually on the wall and see which one you might think looks best. And what Paul is doing is he's saying, these are sins that are especially grievous to the Spirit. And it's sort of like shades all in one place. It could be that too. Either way, I think we get a real sense of the type of attitude that Paul is identifying. Bitterness is animosity that results from constant rehearsal of wrongs that have been suffered. We tell ourselves the same story over and over again and it doesn't matter what the truth of the matter is. It doesn't matter what may or may not be true, it's what matters is the story that we tell ourselves and the victim talk that we provide. And that bitterness just builds because we keep rehearsing over and again the same story to ourselves. Wrath is a strong display of anger. In fact, in some translations, they call it rage. It's an explosion of anger. Uncontrolled anger. A person who loses their temper. This other word for anger is similar to wrath, but it carries more the idea of a, a bubbling anger that results in vengeance. There's a parable, if memory serves, it was applied to the Afghani. An Afghani waits a hundred years to take his revenge, and when he does, chastises himself for his lack of patience. It's a person who loves to hold on wrong, suffered, and plots, revenge, and plots what they're going to say next, and plots what they're going to do next. It's this constant rehearsal and meditation on how we will respond in anger. Clamor is when several voices of anger speak up together, and they do so loudly at the same time. My friends, you will always have opportunity to join the chorus of critics. It doesn't matter what the, what the thing is. It could, there will always be choruses of critics for those who are in charge. And you don't have to agree or disagree with the leader that's over it. 
but do not join the chorus of critics in creating that clamor. Save your voice for that which truly matters. And that is the gospel. Could a conservative American say just as articulately as what for what you feel in this matter? If so, let them say it. You reserve your voice for matters of eternity. Don't join the clamor. Slander. Literally, the word is literally blasphemy. This is harmful speech against another's reputation. The, you can see now why somebody would say that this is, these build on each other. Somebody commits a sin against you or a perceived sin against you and you rehearse that over and over again and it results in this attitude that wants to take vengeance and so you malign their character to others. Slander. Malice. The word literally means, if memory serves, it's kakia, which mainly just means badness. <laughs> all badness. All of it. Paul sort of tosses on a catch-all at the end. All malice, literally all badness, all evil, all depravity. I think in this context, it mainly means the kind of the flower of all of these bits of anger together. It's a spirit now that is totally spoiled and angry and bitter and harsh, condemning. Jesus, Jesus says it like this, that a person who calls his brother Raka, who's fool or blockhead or idiot or imbecile, a person who lets anger so flood their soul they call a brother an imbecile is liable to the judgment. These are strong words from our Savior. And the type of sins that Paul is expressly condemning here and the types of sins that grieve the Spirit of God. Why, why do these sins create particular grief in the heart of the Spirit? Why these, above all others? Well, verse 32 tells us. Okay, Let's look at verse 32. Paul says, but rather... We need an attitude of responsive grace. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. This word be, it's a be kind, be, it's a, it's a present tense verb of transformation. Be becoming this way. It's not going to be natural for you to be a kind, tenderhearted person. You're going to have to grow into this. You're going to have to become this. There are those of us who tend to be a little more tender-hearted, a little more empathetic. But what I would tell you is they just haven't been they haven't had the right nerve hit yet. And when the when their nerve gets hit, you see just how anti-sympathetic they are. We are as a race very unnatural to be an empathetic, kind person. And it's something we have to give constant attention to. We need transformation from within, a transformed nature. 
for kindness. This word kind. It's a lovely word. It's a lovely word. It literally means to leave a good taste in the mouth. To leave a good taste in the mouth. The other day, uh, my wife and I celebrated our 18th anniversary. And we went down to a uh, Brazilian restaurant. Um, I'm sure some of you have been there before. They've got this buffet, and they bring you meat that they kind of slice off the spigot, and you, you stuff yourself one bite at a time. And it's glorious, okay? They, they brought over this one kind of meat. It was, it was some sort of bacon-wrapped deliciousness, okay? And, and she sliced one off, and I was like, hey, I'm going to need two of those, okay? It, it was like, it was just meat and honey and bacon, and it left the most pleasant aftertaste. It was delightful. The Apostle Paul is saying, in our interactions with, other, with others, people ought to leave that interaction saying to themselves, that was a lovely experience. I, I so enjoyed hanging out with so-and-so. You know, I, I could work with so-and-so. You know, I, so-and-so is a joy to be around. You left a good taste in their mouth. We don't hardly ever say that, do we? We say it the other way. We say, they left a bad taste in my mouth. It left a bad taste in my mouth. Well, Paul is saying to be transformed such that people have a pleasant experience around us. He says that he wants us to put on tender heartedness. We talked about this word in Sunday school today, Lognizo. It's a, it's a word of emotion. It comes from down here. I think the best translation is probably tender-hearted. Maybe also empathetic or sympathetic. It's it's hard to identify any one particular definition for it. But I want you to imagine hearing something from a friend, some intense personal struggle that they've been having, and have no control over, no... They're, they're genuinely, truly a victim of something and your heart rises and you, you want to help them, you want to do everything you can for them. Perhaps you see a child who's doing their best and they're struggling and they just can't quite make it work and their frustration is building and you, you're overcome with tender-heartedness and you want to see them succeed and you help them. That's the idea. It's just a... A pleasant spirit of empathy. And Paul is telling us we need to work at cultivating this spirit of empathy rather than a spirit of cynicism. It's so easy to find holes in people's stories or to assume that they've done something wrong to deserve the trouble that they're in. It's so easy to allow cynicism to seep into our souls. Whereas tenderheartedness is sympathetic and empathetic. And then we're told to forgive, to freely forgive. This word forgive is used in other contexts. 
to graciously forgive. And you definitely need to write down a cross-reference here. Luke chapter 7, the sinful woman. Jesus was invited to a Pharisee's house for a dinner. Simon the Pharisee. Simon offered him no courtesies. No ointment for his head. No water for his feet. And so this prostitute who was standing on the outside of this party, she saw Jesus and the unkindness that was expressed to him and she went and she broke open oil and mixed with spices and wet the Savior's feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. And Simon the Pharisee said, this mustn't be the Messiah. Because the Messiah would never let a sinful person like that touch him. The Messiah would say, hands off me. And Jesus says, Simon, i got a question for you. Who loves more? The one, here's our word, forgiven a little bit of debt, or the one forgiven a lot of bit of debt? And Simon says, I suppose the one forgiven a lot of bit of debt. And Jesus says, you're right. This woman whose sins are many. Here's our word again. Has been forgiven. And Jesus, let her handle him. He made himself accessible to her because he'd forgiven her sins. This is the word that Paul is using. God has forgiven us a giant debt. We talked about the size of that debt in adult Sunday school this morning. If you missed it, you could go online and listen. Matthew chapter 18, the man who owed 20 years worth of 10,000 20-year sections of pay. Billions of dollars. And the king forgives it all. It's the size we've been forgiven, the size we've been released from. And Paul is saying, we need to cultivate a present transformation of forgiveness and tenderheartedness and empathy because the opposite is grievous to the spirit of the living God and quite contrary to the saving purposes of God for us. Now I have three very brief applications. Number one, a harsh and judgmental or unforgiving person hasn't yet come to grips with the debt that God has forgiven them. Whenever we encounter harshness and judgmentalism, if you find that perking up, percolating in your soul, like I have found many times in mine, I have to realize that 
the moment I'm judgmental of another is a reflection of how little I understand the dead I've been forbidden. Number two, the cure for a harsh spirit is only partially earthly. Person to person, getting the facts right, etc. Let me give an, let me tell you what I mean by this. I was trying to fit it all in one line. It's hard to do sometimes. Ninety percent of the things we tell ourselves in a conflict with a person are these sort of horizontal details. If I just get the story straight, if I get all the facts right, if I understand their perspective, that's what we spend the majority of our time trying to figure out, isn't it? Now, that can be helpful, can't it? It can be helpful to get the right story, but what if the right story is that person just wanted to hurt you? What if the right what if the story is that person just wanted to be motivated by the flesh? My point is getting all of these horizontal facts can help you. But it's not the ultimate solution and we spend the majority of our time trying to figure those out. When what we need to spend the majority of our time on is remembering how much God has forgiven us. Okay? Tender-hearted forgiveness, last point, comes only by frequent and profound meditation on God's goodness to us. If you want to be, if you say to yourself, you know, I realize I can be judgmental. I realize I can be harmful. I realize I've slandered. I realize I've, I've hurt the reputation of others. I realize that anger and clamor and wrath have come out of me. I realize that I've grieved the Spirit of God. What do I do? Solution is to meditate frequently on just how God, good God has been to you. And you'll find that this sort of tenderheartedness, mercy and compassion, start to come out a little more naturally. Maybe I should say start to come out a little more supernaturally. Because it's the Spirit that has to work that. We forgive because God has forgiven us. We forgive like God has forgiven us. We meditate on the depth of that forgiveness such that we have more than enough to spill onto others. Let's pray. Father, would you give us grace? We need so much of it. You've already graced us. You've already given us so much in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. May we put on compassion and tenderheartedness. Make us a people who are marked by empathy and love. Lord, I don't want to minimize, I don't want to minimize the hurts that some of us have suffered. Some of us have suffered immensely under people. Those are real hurts. 
and nobody's denying that. Nevertheless, would you in your kindness begin to heal hearts with your mercy and grace as we meditate on all the good that you've shown us. For we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.